Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Second Kings chapter 19, and it reads, And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the households, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This is a day... This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. And it may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the Rabbishka, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Uh, Rabshka has come to the gates of Jerusalem, with them's a hundred plus thousand soldiers. They've surrounded it. They've taken every Judean city. All that's left is the city of Jerusalem. We're at the end. This could be the end of the Bible right here. We're at the, the end of the story if Jerusalem falls. And everything looks like Jerusalem's going to fall. Rabshah com- comes up. He's kind of that mouth of the king of Assyria. And his words are just dripping with evil. And he discourages, he mocks them, he's arrogant, and he makes this a spiritual battle because he claims that Yahweh can't protect Jerusalem against him and his God and his king. And so the idea that Hezekiah responds to this, like this would have been a good one to do like as a two-hour teaching and just keep going last week, but Hezekiah doesn't surrender to Assyria at all. In fact, there's no mention of even considering a surrender to Assyria. And this is kind of resolution from a good king. Uh, Hezekiah has lost a lot, but he hasn't lost his hope. He's been bent, but he hasn't been broken. So stories like this one embolden the Jewish people for all of human history. Like, it doesn't matter how bad it looks. God is still God, and he's still on his throne. And, I, and it's encouragement for us as believers, but I, it's these kinds of stories that give the Jews the reputation of being able to maintain their culture no matter where they're sent to. Because there's going to be a resilience to the Jewish people because of stories like this. That said, there's two kinds of stubborn. There's the, there's the ignoring everything that's contrary to what you think stubborn. And then there's the ignoring everything and everyone else in favor of what God thinks kind of stubborn. And I would, and I would say that there's a, a bad stubborn, which is kind of a pride, and a, and a good stubborn, which is actually humility and humility to God. So instead of being prideful or thinking he knows what he's doing, verse 1, he tears his clothes like he's at his own end. It's an act of extreme grief, as we've seen it in the Bible so far. Point is, his emotions are strong here. He's absolutely ripped up when it comes to his feelings. When it comes to his thoughts, he goes straight to Isaiah. He goes straight to hear from a a brother in the Lord. He takes the threat seriously. He's not flippant about it. He's not foolish about it. 
Um, in the same token, he's done trying to, you know, he's dug Hezekiah's tunnel. He's built the walls. He's built the Milo. According to Chronicles, he's done everything he can do to get ready for this assault. Yet it's still overwhelming. In his own strength, he's done everything. There's nothing left. So he went into the house of the Lord. Amazing that the king of Israel, with 185,000 troops outside the door, his response is to go to the temple and pray. And, and in that situation, regardless of what happens, he's going to go be with his God. And you just think of what a good king looks like. This is what a good king looks like. Things look tough. He goes to prayer first. Uzziah went into the house of the Lord and burned incense there. In 2 Chronicles 26, that was seen as a crime. God gave him leprosy because it was arrogance. But Hezekiah goes to the temple. We can assume that he didn't go walking into the Holy of Holies. We can assume he went there for prayer because he doesn't get leprosy and God doesn't condemn him for this. God actually rewards him for coming into God's house. So the temple was a place of sacrifice, prayer, worship, teaching, and fellowship. That's what you did when you went to the temple. So if Hezekiah is going there, he's doing one of those five, all of those five, or most likely he's going there to pray. And that the belief was if you went to the temple to pray that you were going to the place God had put his name on. And so his mourning in this, it doesn't get him astray from his belief that God can do whatever he wants to. I think this is a great message. And, and it says the word then in verse 2. Then he sent Eliakim. So Hezekiah puts his relationship between him and God first. And then he involves these brothers that he's walking through life with. And he pulls them into this thing because there is a need then for that fellowship. And actually calling on Isaiah, which would be the person that kind of represents God's word in their life at this point, one of the prophets. So uh, he says to Isaiah, the prophet, the name Isaiah, this is our first mention of Isaiah, by the way, in the Bible. So as we hit Isaiah for the first time, it is in the Hebrew Yeshaya or Isaiah. Um, it means salvation is Jehovah in the past tense. Salvation is the Lord. What's interesting about Isaiah is if you flip the two parts of the word, it turns into Yeshua, or it is Jehovah is salvation, which is the name of Joshua, or later on, if you speak it in the Aramaic, Jesus. So Isaiah's name is simply the flip of the name Jesus, and it's turned around. I thought that was kind of cool. Hezekiah prays to God, and then he literally asks for salvation as Jehovah to come and counsel him. Given the offer, um, fairly popular thing. And then the next thing I want to share is this Amos. They point out that he's the son of Amos, and they do it again and again and again. And in the Hebrew, the word Amos means strong, Amots. It's likely named that because at this point in time, Amots was seen as strong. And we have a number of characters in the Bible that's name seems to have changed. We saw that with uh, Josiah. We saw it with Abraham, going from Abram to Abraham. Uh, we, we see a number of characters in the Bible where as they go through their life maturity and changes, their name changes. Simon um, is called Peter. Saul becomes Paul. And we see those situations. So when you see Amos the strong, that's after the fact, uh, likely. Um, there was a prophet during Uzziah's reign who spoke against the northern kingdoms. He lived in a town just outside of Jerusalem, and his name was Amos, with an A-S on the end of it. The difference between Amos and Amos in the English is one letter. It's actually a lot more than one letter in the Hebrew, but the pronunciation of them sound about the same. So when we see Amos and Amos, we're pronouncing words that are slightly different in pronunciation, but they're very different words. So... Amos with an S, if you in the Hebrew, is burden. So here's a guy with a burden that brings his burden to the northern kingdom, and he carries that out. 
as that burden is proven true, um, he's called a motes, or you could switch that with an S and make it a complementary name instead of a negative one. And this is a Sean theory, um, but we are ex we're about 33 years after the fact, and we have a son of Amos um, who's also a prophet in Jerusalem. And, and why would you say Isaiah the son of Amos? It's because Isaiah is not known for anything. This is first mention. But the son of Amos continues through the passages as we see Isaiah mentioned. He's Isaiah the son of Amos, like we should know who Amos is, based on the text itself. So 33 years prior, one of the first prophets to pop up in Israel history is this guy named Amos, and he gives a prophecy to the northern kingdom, which six years ago, from our writing, just came true. So here's a prophecy that was years, decades in the waiting, but as the northern kingdom falls, Amos's prophecies just came true. So in the Jewish people, especially the people in Jerusalem that are this remnant that's left, they would have been holding the writings of Amos and probably holding them in very high regard because as the northern kingdom fell, it happened exactly like Amos said that it would. So his reputation, even though he's dead at this point, would be going way up. So my thought is it's fairly likely that they switched the, the pronunciation from an Amos to an Amotes and changed it from burden to strength. And the mentioning that they're making here is that Isaiah is actually the son of Amos. And the timing works out. The place works right. Amos was from Tekoa. He was a sheep herder. He was not a Levite. And then you've got this son of the prophet who's not a Levite, and they go to Isaiah. Here's the other thing. Why are they going to some guy named Isaiah that they had to send for? Right? So there, there's a respect for Isaiah, even though he hasn't done anything in the historical narrative yet. And the respect is that he's the son of Amos, who's a prophet who actually spoke for God. And those prophecies actually came true. So as we see the establishment of these prophets, I think it's important to consider where they came from, who they are, what school, what community they were with. Isaiah calls on salvation, um, and he's here asked for, you know, in the same way that Amos predicted the fall of the northern kingdom, it would make a ton of sense to go to his son and say, is this the end of Judah? Like, so in the way sending for Isaiah is, tell us what's about to happen. And we know that Isaiah and Hezekiah have, have spent some time together because we see that in the book of Isaiah and in Chronicles. He was an advisor to the king. And this is the, the idea that we get there. They say this is the day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. That's a response to what we read in chapter 18. They say the children have come to birth. That's a way of saying that there, there's this idea of getting ready to make birth as a baby growing inside of a womb. And there's a day of, of pain between being in the womb and out of the womb. And that growth is a good thing. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Israel has taken down the high places. They've returned to right worship of God. They've done been doing everything right. And here comes this day of trouble. And so that idea of coming to birth, but then there's no strength to bring it forth. In the ancient world, that was likely that both the baby and the mom are about to die. And that's what it looks like for Israel. We're all going to die. So we've been doing all the right things. There's something beautiful that's happening in Judah. And here we are at the very end of it all. And it looks like we're not going to be able to endure this test. And the human strength, koach, arguably that's a play on words with, with Amos itself. Um, Amos isn't here, but we need some strength of prophetic guidance. We need some strength right now. So Isaiah, the son of strength, please bring them forth. And so you have this idea that those are two different ways to say strength in the Hebrew and um, probably a play on words. Hear all the words. They want the, 
the idea that the Rabshika is taunting not just them, but God himself, that's the only hope they have, is that God takes this personal. And if God takes it personal, then the faith is there. Their feelings are desperate. They've tore their clothes, but their hope is in the Lord, that the Lord will save them. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that's left. He prays and he asks for his friend to pray. And when things get tough, what a great, what a great process to go through. We pray, we ask our friends to pray too. Um, in the face of discouragement, overwhelming odds, let's pray about it and let's put it up. Verse 5. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah and Isaiah said to them, Thus so you say to your master. It doesn't record that they even said what they were told to say to Isaiah. I don't know if that's just to speed up the narrative or if Isaiah already knew what the message was and he just comes in. So they came to Isaiah and Isaiah said to them, Thus shall you say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Another, and then I think verse 6 is basically, Yes, Hezekiah, I've heard everything this guy said. I've been tuned in the whole time. Verse 7, Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall, neither, he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. And with this, we're introduced with Isaiah, one of the greats of the Old Testament. Um, the book of Isaiah is significant and long, 66 chapters. Uh, some people argue there's 66 books in the Bible and 66 chapters in Isaiah, and that Isaiah is like a mini Bible and that each chapter, I don't know about that. Paul, is that the case? I've heard the same thing. All right, I've heard the same thing, but uh, clearly a significant prophet, one of the ones that the Jewish people held in high regard and one that we held in high regard. So he's introduced, his first prophecy that he's recorded to give is a fairly easy one to disprove. Either these people get up and pack it up and go home or they don't. And so with these words, he's put himself out there by putting, thus says the Lord in verse six in front of what he's saying, he's putting his life on this statement if they don't pack up and go home, the correct response of the high priest is to show up at Isaiah's house, bring him into trial, and he is, he's a false prophet, and he gets killed. So he's putting his life on the line. He's pretty sure this is what God said to him. Um, that's tough, and it puts a high standard when we say that we speak on behalf of the Lord. You better be sure that you speak on behalf of the Lord. Good way to be sure of it is just cite the Bible. Like, now you're in good territory. But you start saying the Lord's saying something new to you, you better be darn sure that's the Lord. Um, so, today, whenever we say things, we can with confidence, unshakably, cite the scriptures, and we are speaking for the Lord, and we can bet our life on it, as Isaiah does. So, he says, of the words, and, and I think the emphasis there is on words. You know, we used to always hear, like, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's come under some at attack recently. Words do hurt. They do cause emotional damage. But biblically speaking, the idea is God said, I've heard his words, but words are not the same thing as pulling out a sword and taking Jerusalem. They're just words. In fact, at this point, Assyria has done nothing to the city of Jerusalem. They've done plenty of things around Jerusalem that you should be scared of. But when it comes to Jerusalem, they haven't actually attacked yet. Um, he says the servants of the king, he, I, I think that the Lord's response here puts Rabshakeh in his place. He is just a servant. Um, and all he's got left is fear and words. He really doesn't have any power as a servant. So God doesn't use the title, but he uses the word servants. I, you know, And in fact, the word servants in the Hebrew there, 
um, instead of calling him Rabshaka, this big illustrious title, he just calls him a servant. And the word servant in the Hebrew actually means a baby boy. So this little child of the king, this little baby toddler of the king, it's actually a diminutive term or a, di- a diminishing term. Instead of the great Rabshaka, it's a servant boy, uh, uh, you know, the lowest form. Um, so we have these little servant children of the kings, these lackeys. Um, I think the way the Lord gives his message to Hezekiah is encouraging because from the Lord's perspective, he doesn't see this guy as as big a deal as maybe he appears to be. So he uses language that's truthful and and encouraging at the same time. Verse 4, it may be that the Lord your God will hear is that prayer that Hezekiah had. The answer he gets from God is absolutely, Assyria has blasphemed me. So now this is my problem. And as we look at problems in life, like one of those things, if you go to the Lord with prayer and you put it on his altar, I think a great strategy in life is to take our problems and say, God, I'd like this to be your problem. And can you take this off my plate? And so he does that. You shall hear that the pro- prophecy is he'll hear a rumor and return. Um, this is a big one. And uh, immediately, it's not easy to see this happening. So even if you heard a rumor, wouldn't you just take Jerusalem and finish the deal and then go? And do your thing. So it's a big one. Verse 8. Then the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna. For he heard that he had departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning Terhaka, the king of Ethiopia. Look, he's come out to make war with you. So again, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Basically, first part of the prophecy comes true. They call back the army. So we thought we had an insurmountable problem. The insurmountable problem doesn't look so insurmountable when the problem walks away. I think our best hope in conflict situations is the conflict just evaporates and just goes away. It wasn't what we thought it would be. So they pick up the, the, the rumor they hear, and they call it a rumor in the prophecy, so don't mistake this. They hear that Ethiopia has gathered an army to attack them. There's some historical evidence that there was a battle between Assyria and Ethiopia or with Egyptian troops in it, and that Assyria won that battle and smashed them. Uh, It's not clear when that battle happened, but in the passage itself, it says it was a rumor. So this is likely after they smashed Egypt, biblically speaking. And then there's a rumor that Egypt has gathered another army and is coming for another attack. But at the reality, we know Egypt's not there to help Jerusalem or anything like that um, because largely Assyria has likely already had that battle. And then that fits with the biblical text. This was a rumor. Um, That said, if you look at a history of the world map as it progresses, between 1719 and 702 BC, there is a season where Judah is shrunk to a single city, Jerusalem. So this remnant that's left, all that's left, is one single city of people, likely at this time maybe 40,000, 50,000 Jews left in Jerusalem. And you have all of that surrounding area be Assyria. In fact, at this point in history, Assyria controls all the way down to the Nile River. And there's just this dot in the middle that is the kingdom of Jerusalem that's still standing. So this is an annoying little speck in their empire maps that they still have this standing city in the middle. So they leave the city. The Rabshakeh leaves this, like he's even trying to discourage from a distance, like we're leaving, but don't let that make you think that your God's going to save you. Okay, but the salvation's there for now. 
Isaiah also tells Hezekiah that the Ethiopian force will not stop Assyria. So if there is a rumor or truth or the timelines are goofed up, there's also a prophecy from Isaiah to Hezekiah saying that they're going to fall. It reads like this. The Lord said, like as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years, a sign and wonder upon Egypt and upon Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the, Ethi the Egyptian prisoners and the Ethiopian captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, even with their butts uncovered. So Isaiah clearly tells them I, that Assyria is going to smash this situation with Egypt. They do. Um, whether or not that happens before or after this is kind of neither here nor there. So he sends messengers to send these continuous barrage of word attacks, but word attacks don't topple walls. So words aren't hurting them. Then verse 11. Look, you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them, and you shall be delivered? So this is still the Rabshakeh giving words of nastiness. Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed, Gozan and Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who are in the Telassar? Where's the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of the Seraphim, or whatever that is, Hena and Eva? So he's like a broken record. This is all the same stuff he said back in chapter 18, so I'm not even going to break it down. He's just continuing to say the same stuff. He's belittling God, and he's saying, prove that you have any strength to stop us. And, you know, Hezekiah's like, well, you haven't tried to beat us yet, so we'll see what happens. He uses the phrase utterly destroying in verse 11. Uh, make no mistake, utterly destroying is to absolutely erase the city. This is personal at this point. They're not trying to take Jerusalem to be part of their empire. They're not going to take it to be a trade network or a trade hub. The idea of utterly destroy is we're not, we're not taking you to be an empire over you. We want you off the map. We want you out of existence. So this is, uh, the, when they use the word utterly destroy, the Assyrians, some of the cities, according to the record, they would burn down every single stone and then they would break the stones up. So literally all that's left of one of these Assyrian conquests is a layer of dirt in the archaeological tell. Complete and other, utter destruction going on. Verse 14. I should say the utter destruction, I think that's important because this isn't just a political conquest at this point. It is a spiritual beef, and the Assyrians have made it that, and that's, I think, where God gets involved. Verse 14, And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, and you've made heaven and earth. The prayer starts with who God is. I love when we get examples of prayer in the Old Testament, because there is a pattern. All of the prayers in the Old Testament that I have seen, correct me if, I, if there's a different one, they start with identifying who God is in truth. God, this is who you are. Because when we pray, it's not about who we are, it's about who God is. And if there's any action that's going to come by God on behalf of our prayers, it starts with who God is, and who God's, what God's will is in the first place. So when we pray, it's more for us to resonate with who God is than it is for us to change God. So he starts with this just approach. I, then he takes this letter, this nasty letter from the Rabshakeh, and he spreads it out from the Lord physically. He puts it down and he lays it out as though he's opening it for God to read. You take it. Some psychologists, when you got like that bad memory or, or thing that you keep bringing up to accuse yourself of things through life, those bad experiences. 
one good the one tip that a lot of counselors will give is write that experience out with as much detail as you can in all the detail that you can and then read it out loud and then do something with the letter. Crumple it up, throw it away, burn it in a fire, hand it to a trusted friend. But just the act of writing it out and laying it out has a great effect. In other words, you're handing it over. So he takes this nasty letter from the Rabshakeh and he spreads it before the Lord. And I can see him just at the steps of the temple actually rolling this thing out, maybe getting a couple stones to hold it open because the paper wants to curl just sets it out before the Lord and then gives this prayer. Um, then Hezekiah prayed. Like he's just taking his troubles and he's putting them for the Lord. The word spread there is paras. It means to stretch to the point of breaking, to put something on display, to push it to its utmost. Here, God, I'm giving you all of this and all of it's ugly. You can have it. And I don't want it anymore. I want it out of my life. And he does this act. It seems like pithy at some point before seeing what God's about to do it almost seems like weird or desperate or illogical like you think this is going to help you all those soldiers the threats of Assyria coming back you really think this is going to fix a political geopolitical dynamic but look at what he prays you Lord God of Israel the one who dwells between the cherubim the cherubim are the two angels on top of the ark where he said he would put his name you're the one that puts your name here you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Absolutely, he can change geopolitical situations. You know, and, and I don't know why he's doing what he's doing, but boy, if he wanted to stop a war, start a war, he's the God that handles all that. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of armies. And he can move these things and change them. You made heaven and earth. He can change things in the spiritual realm, and he can change things in the earthly realm. That doesn't always mean he's going to do what I want him to do, but he's the God that can do whatever he pleases. And we should know that without, beyond a shadow of a doubt. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. The only reason we can spread things out before the Lord is because we know the Lord cares. And we trust that he loves and he cares for his name and the glory that other people are going to hear. So do this, do this thing if you're troubled. Take your troubles and put them before the Lord. Lay them out with as much detail as you can. Not to be windy, but to be specific. And give him your cares, give him your troubles. So this time, notice the first time he prays and he sends for Isaiah, he gets an encouraging word back from the Lord. This time, I just want to point out, he does not send for Isaiah. This spreading out before the Lord is likely a very public affair where he's doing it with the people around him and they're coming into that temple and praying. The Lord God of Israel, it's not just any God, it's their God. Even in not sending for Isaiah, the Lord's still going to respond to Hezekiah, even though he didn't send for Isaiah this time. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of the Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the king of Assyria has laid waste to the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them, and now therefore, O Lord, our God, pray and save us from his hand. All the kingdoms of the earth might know that you are the Lord God, you alone. Hidden between the lines here is possibly what God's doing. All these false gods of the Canaanites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, they're all getting thrown into the fire, not by the Israelites who were supposed to throw them in the fire, but by the Assyrians, because the Assyrians are erasing all of them so they can worship Assyrian gods. Think of what's happening here. 
Assyria is effectively eliminating scores of tribal cultures with their own pantheons of gods, which we've never heard of because they were erased from the planet Earth at this point in time. You can still go in and find out about Assyrian gods. We can, if we really dig, find out a few things about Canaanite gods. But really, the archaeological record of a lot of these cities and these gods they're mentioning, are, are the, the only record is here in the Word of God. So it's interesting that God is using this outside nation to throw false gods into the fire and burn them up and erase them from the history of the world. And so we can see that the, the God, how maybe he's using this brutal people to do some of those things. That creates a whole other set of questions. Hezekiah sees through the lies. It's clear from his prayer that he knows exactly what the situation is. This is between God and Assyria. It's not between him and the Rabshakeh. And the way he prays in verse 16 makes that very, very clear. The idea of wooden stone is that the wooden stone did not make a covenant. That's the difference between Hezekiah and all these other nations. He sees through the lies of the... Sennacherib's trying to say you're just like every other nation. You're just like every other city we've conquered. Why do you think you're different? Don't let God lie to you and make you think you're different. Because you're so small. You're so little. There's so few of you. You have no power to fight back. Why do you possibly think you're different than other people? Don't go to your deathbed thinking you're special. And that just sounds like the enemy when it says that. But Hezekiah knows, Exodus 6, 7, this is what God said. I will take you to me for a people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, which brings you out from out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Leviticus 26, 12, I will walk among you and I will be your God and you will be my people. Has God walked among them yet? No. At some point, God's going to walk among his people, but that hasn't happened yet. So God's promises are at stake. If Jerusalem gets snuffed out, so does the promises of God through the people of Israel. So Hezekiah is bringing to him these promises. It's not just the God of Israel, but verse 19, O Lord, our God. Not only is he just a God, he's our God. It's personal. Hezekiah has felt in his life the effect of God in his life. And so he's not just worshiping God as the God of Israel, but he's worshiping God as our God, the one who we serve. There's a relationship that's there. The idea of all the kingdoms of the earth. This is God's will, is that his name will be proclaimed on all the kingdoms of the earth. So when Hezekiah uses this language, he's praying the will of God. God, you want all the people to see your glory. And here's a chance for these people to see your glory. And that's your will. So he's praying. He first identifies who God is in truth. Second, he lays his concerns before the Lord. And third, he identifies what God's will is. This is, I know this is your will. I know these are your promises. And God loves it when we speak his promises back to him because it means we've heard the promises. We understand the promises. We're waiting for God to keep those promises. So just a great prayer. Oh, the Lord God, you alone. Uh, Again, this is just an element of prayer. It's not about Hezekiah. He's a king It's not about Isaiah. He's a messenger. It's certainly not about the people of Israel who are a remnant that's barely left over. It's certainly not Sennacherib and these Assyrians that claim that they're better than Yahweh. It really is, Lord God, you alone. You're the only one that matters in this equation. Verse 20, he sent to Hezekiah. (laughs) Um, As we get into this, just note that he never asked for this from Isaiah. Isaiah just... 
either miraculously knew about the prayer or it was a public prayer. So Isaiah was in town and saw Hezekiah doing this. Uh, there's easily explainable situations there. There's also the idea that God just told Isaiah to say this. So Isaiah says it and, and it's the way God answers him. Verse 20. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah saying, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. So, not, not always, but this in this particular situation, God gives a very specific response to a very urgent prayer. From a prophet who just got proven true that 185,000 people just left town. So, you're going to take Isaiah's word pretty seriously at this point. Because you've prayed to me. It's interesting to me, and I, and I still, this is one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. It's interesting to me that an almighty creator God would listen to us. We're just specks on a very small planet in the middle of a very big universe. Why would God wait to act or answer prayer for us to pray to do it? And that becomes this great mystery. And I hope you all have answers to that question. But it is one of the great things in this idea that because you've prayed to me. So what if Hezekiah never prayed? Like, would God have found a different rate to save Israel? Would he have, would the course of history changed at that point? But God says, because you have prayed to me, that he's now going to do something. Then maybe God's just waiting for us to have trials. He's just waiting for us to come to him in prayer. How many answered prayers don't get answered because we never bother to hand it over to the Lord and lay it before him? And you just think, what a, an amazing thing. God's going to show later. He doesn't need Judah to have a land. Future history, they're going to get hauled off to Babylon. Maybe they just bought themselves a ton more time in the promised land because of Hezekiah's prayer. And we don't know. We don't know what that'll look like. But he doesn't need the Jewish people to have land for his plan to come true. So there's no necessary reason for them to stay here. We could ask then, if this very prayer of Hezekiah saved them for generations of blessing. And, and what the power of prayer is, is, is one of those mysteries, I think, that's here too. Um, James 5.16, confess your trespasses to one another, pray for one another that you might be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Hezekiah's prayer, this guy's lived it, he's done it, he's stuck to God's law as well as he can. And when he sits down to pray, it actually, it, it moves God to, to action because you have prayed to me. Matthew 17, 20, Jesus said to them, this is the disciples, the leaders of the new church age, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move it from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Sometimes God just waits for the righteous to lift up prayer in unity in concert with God's will, and God's waiting for that to happen. He says, I have heard just the idea that that's the way God answers us. We pray and God just says, I've heard you. That's not a yes, that's not a no, that's not a maybe, or a wait till later. It's just a, a, a confirmed thing. He hears the prayers. And so we may not get a yes, we may not get a no, we might get a wait and see on this one. Um, but that idea that we pray, God wants us to do it. He invites us to do it. He does move and act because of it. He just, we don't know what, if he's going to give us a yes, no, or a later. And those are the answers he gives. But, it, but we do know that he's heard. So, interesting. So, 
There are some people, and I, I would be remiss to not point this out. Some people point out that Hezekiah perhaps thought that Judah deserved what they're getting. He doesn't, and there's nowhere in his prayer that he tries to appeal that Jerusalem's been righteous or good. In fact, they've his under his own father, they were following after false gods. There's every reason to believe that part of what's happening is actually a promise of God. In fact, if you read Amos, the destruction of the northern kingdom was because of their idolatry and their false worship. False worship that Judah has also done. So Hezekiah may be praying this prayer knowing like, you know, hey, we deserve the punishment that's coming, Lord. We, we have also gone astray and done the wrong thing. And this appeal, in some ways, could be an appeal to maybe for God to do something different. Because it looks like God's allowing Assyria to eat up the Jewish people and spit them out. So, in that sense, you know, this idea that Hezekiah may be keenly aware of the sins of Judah. In the same sense, we're keenly aware of our own sins, too. We are all sinners. And when we go to God, we go to God with this humility of, boy, if judgment were to come, maybe some of us would deserve judgment. And there is that fear of God, like, we're sinners, we deserve to be punished. And maybe Hezekiah's thinking of it like that. So I don't know how far I'd go into that on this particular passage, but I just wanted to share that I did come across some commentators that got that out of this passage. So I'd be interested to see what you think. Verse 21, this is the word which the Lord had spoken concerning him, speaking of Sennacherib. As this was for Sennacherib, Um, my assumption is that they would have sent this. So when a prophet has a word for somebody, their obligation was to get that word to that person. So when Nathan got a word about David, he had to walk in and hand that message to David. And so, and when Amos had a word for the Northern Kingdom, he wrote down his prophecies and they got a scroll with Amos's prophecies on it, maybe a messenger to hand it to him. So when it says, verse 21, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him, it is likely that Sennacherib got a a letter in response to his letter that says the next few things. Uh, We saw in chapter 18 that they did send messengers to one another, so there's context for this. And we've, um, you know, basically, we've heard from your serving boy, now it's time for you to hear from Yahweh. We've heard enough from the Rabshakeh, it's time for God to respond. And that's where I get excited. Here's what he says. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem is shaking her head behind your back. <laughs> so Jerusalem's presented as a virgin, like obvious imagery for later, but we won't get into that. Um, despising an unworthy suitor. Think of it this. You got this beautiful young lady. She's ready. She's a virgin. She's ready to be married. She's found. She's at that age, and she's got this ugly suitor that comes up, and he's kind of coarse and unkept and whatever. And this young lady just throws up her nose and says, "Dude, you don't even have a chance." The idea is Jerusalem's a beautiful young bride, and Assyria's just not not even in the same league as this. It's a great response. Jerusalem was settled by giants. It was taken by David. It has never been conquered since. It's a virgin city. It's never been entered into. And so that image is a striking image in historical speaking. But this idea of behind your back, right? They've come all the way up to the gates and kind of courted her. And, sh- and then they've walked away. And as they're walking away, she's just shaking her heads behind your back. You came up and you took your try and you ran away like a bunch of cowards. 
you're not good enough for Jerusalem. Like, this is the kind of things that Hezekiah, maybe Isaiah, as he's writing this down, is thinking, oh, this is really going to tick him off. Like, these are fighting words. Uh, it, they're basically inviting Assyria to come back and take another shot, right? Or they should just go home with their tail between their legs and not even try to get the young lady again. Um, I'm going to read it again. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, Jerusalem, has despised you and laughed you to scorn. We're laughing at you at this point. Like you say that to Sennacherib and Rabshakeh and these prideful Assyrians. You're asking for, like, they're just like, you, you're nothing to us. Look at a map during the, during the 720s, and you can just see Assyria dominating the Fertile Crescent. They've conquered and controlled from Babylon all the way down through to Egypt, and there's just one little dot here, and they're saying things like, we despise you, we laugh at you. You're nothing. Uh, it's just great. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. She's laughing at the fact that you even courted her, right? Kind of a snooty girl in that sense. I mean, this isn't a nice young lady by any means. Um, but at that second, too, like the imagery is pretty clear. Verse 22, whom you've reproached and blasphemed, against whom you've raised your voice and lifted your eyes on high, an image of pride, against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers, you've reproached the Lord. This Rabshakeh, he said nasty things about me. And said, by the multitude of my chariots, I've come up from the height of the mountains to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter the extremity of the borders to its fruitful forest, and I've dug and drunk strange water. And with the soles of my feet, I've dried up all the brooks of defense. You claim victory over the holy God by taking land. The point is, just because you took land doesn't mean you've beaten God. Like, it's just land. The walking here in the, on earth means a kind of power. You control and dominate a region. From God's perspective, that's not the definition of power. It's just that he hasn't got busy letting Assyria be destroyed yet. Bill Moyers um, at one point asked Maya Angelou, a famous poet, and he asked her about the comments she made about autonomy, right? And he asked her a clarifying question in the interview, and he says, so you're saying that you belong to nowhere, nowhere, no one, you belong nowhere and to no one. And Maya Angelou answers, I belong to Maya. Humans do this. They think that because nobody's responded to them, that they have autonomy in that sense, that they have, there's a pride that comes up with success. And Assyrians have had a lot of success and they have a lot of pride and they brag and we get some of those braggings. They have chariots, verse 23. They've cut down forests, verse 23. They've entered borders and they, and they think that that's a good thing. Verse 24 is another kind of bragging. The Assyrians actually made this. They bragged that their armies were so big that when they had to cross a riverbed, the water that would stick to their soldiers' feet would dry up the riverbed and turn it to mud. And the reality is it's true, 185,000 soldiers, they, were, they would take so much water out of that river that it would dry up and turn the riverbed into mud as they crossed over it. The idea that we think that size of army matters it shows just how out of touch we are with the God's view of us and the reality that we have to deal with. Do they even know, and that's just because God created beings that can be arrogant, doesn't mean they should be arrogant. Just because Assyria has a big army doesn't mean they should put their faith in that army 
And he says the same things to the kings of Israel, and now he's saying it to a Gentile nation. The, the question from God in verses 23, 24 is, do you even know who you're dealing with when you say these kinds of things? You brag and you boast, and God's patience with you does not equate to his approval of you. People can say very nasty, arrogant things, and God does have a patience with them, but that doesn't mean he approves of them. You know, you'll see people that say, see, I'm defying the Lord. Nothing's happening. There's no lightning bolt. Well, that's foolish thinking, but that's the Assyrian kind of thinking. You're claiming dominance simply because something horrible hasn't happened to you yet. But that's a foolish way to think. Those chariots and those chopping down of trees are just physical actions. They don't equate to approval. Um, so there's that idea. Um, you're not just right because you have a hundred some thousand soldiers that agree with you. You can have a hundred thousand people agree with you. That doesn't make you right. And it's the fallacy of, of what in the logic world, in philosophy, they call the, the bandwagon fallacy. Just because tons of people agree with me, I must be right. It's a, very, it's a dangerous place to be. It's a dangerous thing to think that just because so many people say that something's true, that it is true. It's a tool that can be used. Verse 25. Did you not hear long ago how I made it? <laughs> Didn't you hear that I made the world? Like he's referring to Genesis. From ancient times that I formed it. Those trees you cut down, that land you're walking on, don't you know that I made that land? Just because you can drive up a, a, a riverbed, I made the river. And I made the bed. And you're bragging about how you walk on it. Now I have brought it to pass, verse 25, now I've brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. God has allowed them to destroy some cities. That's where I was thinking, like, they're destroying all these idols that the Israelites should have been destroying. And they're doing that work. Verse 26, Therefore their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb, as the grass on the housetops and green blighted before it is grown. When God doesn't defend people, human power is always fairly small. The grass on the housetops. So this idea that there is inhabitants of the land, but those inhabitants have very little power. They're like grass. And grass gets mowed, right? It gets trimmed. It's not a powerful thing just because there's a lot of grass in the field. Just because you have weeds in your yard doesn't mean those weeds have power. And that's what he's calling the Assyrians. Again, that's not a nice thing to say. Um, he, he is probably aggravating the Assyrians with these words. Blighted grass before it's grown. The idea here is that there's sin before they've even raised up. And remember the Assyrians had the prophet Jonah come to them. They came right to the capital city, and for a moment, the Assyrians understood and accepted the God of Jonah. And they, so they know who Yahweh is, and they followed him at this point. They're in outright rebellion against that God, and they had to refuse the appeal God made to them in order to get to this point. I think this is why this is kind of a spiritual battle, that they've made their choice. God's doing a work here. And he's basically saying, don't mess with my historic landscaping. Like, I've got a plan for the planet Earth, and you're not going to mess with it. Verse 27. I like this. Because I know where you live. <laughs> I know your dwelling place. You're going out and you're coming in, and your rage against me, because of your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle on your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. Whoa, I just, this is fun. Some people think God's such, like the Old Testament God's mean and nasty. I think this is an Old Testament God that's like, he's, he's protecting 
the kids from the bully on the playground. He's the one kid that stands up and just says, you will not do this. Enough of your nonsense. Um, but I know your dwelling place is literally, I know where you live. So this is where we get that the first time in writing. Like, I know where your house is. Um, it's a contrast to the pagan belief that the God, the pagans believe that God's had dominion over cities. So for Yahweh to say, I know where you live, says, I'm the God of your city too. You think that Ashdod's your God or Argoth is your God or whoever God you appeal to, Chemosh, you think those are the gods of those cities. Ah, uh, I know where you live. I know you're going out and coming in. I watch you when you leave your door in the morning and I watch you when you come in. I'm the God of the whole earth. Don't you understand? There's no hiding from me. So God's basically saying, I got eyes everywhere, right? And you think you're, you think you're so great. Um, and it says, because of your rage against me in verses 28. Um, second to Hezekiah's prayer, we have a second because. God's going to do a miracle here. And we got two reasons now. One is because Hezekiah prayed. And now in verse 28, because of Assyria's rage against him. There, there's two pieces to this. This is why sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers. is because God's looking for things to come together to click. And sometimes prayers don't get answered in part because God's got other things going on in other parts of the world. And sometimes our prayers may conflict with each other. Either way, we want to just give God that choice to answer our prayer, not to answer our prayer. But in this case, he's got Hezekiah's prayer and he's got this defiant rage of the Assyrians. It's time for him to do something about the Assyrians. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips. I've told you before about Assyria's practice of putting hooks in noses and lips and hauling people off to other parts of the country uh, in the cruelest, most inhumane way to do it. We got the image of the Assyrians or the Ethiopians being beat and they would strip people naked and march them. The point was to humiliate people. And God's response is, I, actually, I'm going to humiliate Assyria. You are about to get the same treatment that you give to other people. That's what I would call justice. Uh, it's not pretty. It's a, a great record that the Assyrians kept. They were proud of their torture methods. They have giant friezes in the British Museum where they bragged about it by putting it on the walls of their throne room. Right? We love torturing people. This was something they took great pride in. So Eshardin's Stella that's in Janjirli um, has a picture of an Assyrian king and he would force the kings of conquered nations to bow before him in the throne room every day. And they often had bridles on their faces. So we know the hook thing from when they haul people around. But the bridle on the face was how the Assyrians would treat conquered kings. They would put them in a bridle and treat them like an animal and have them act like an animal in their throne room or beat them. So if you wanted to not get beat today, you would act like a dog in the throne room of the Assyrian king. And you would bow before him and you'd walk around on all fours. And so there's images of that. The Assyrians kept these records. Uh, the Bible doesn't. The God of justice knows what the appropriate punishment is for people. This, I will put a hook in your nose and bridle in your lips. The mistake is to think that the God of the Old Testament just took joy in torture. The reality is, the historical reality of this is, he's giving them the consequence that they've given to multiple nations. And he's basically saying, you're going to get what you gave. And that's going to be a kind of a adjustment, justice for the evil that happens. Then verse 29. Verse 29. This shall be a sign to you. Why would God give them a sign if punishment's coming? Unless he's hoping that they repent. Like there's a certain thing here. If you're going to bring justice, just bring it. 
But he's like, this is going to be a sign to you. You shall eat this year as the grow as such grows of itself. And in the second year, what springs from the same. So they're going to have their troops moving around. There won't be farmers. You're going to just kind of eat what's in the fields. And next year, there'll be those leftover crops that kind of pop up on their own. And in the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat fruit of them. So really, there's going to be a season of peace. God's unexplainedly giving them a season of, of, of rest to repent. And this is how you know that what God's going to say is true, is that these things will happen. But don't let that fool you. Don't let the period of peace make you think that judgment isn't coming. So historically, Nineveh and Babylon get two Assyrian princes as rulers. They, it looks like a season of peace. But what's going to happen to Assyria is Babylon, one of the two Assyrian rulers, will rise up and say, eh, eh, I don't want to listen to my brother anymore. And then he's going to attack. And because he has a Syrian upbringing, the new leader of the risen Babylon, the new Babylon, is going to take Assyria and give an Assyrian-style punishment to the Assyrians. So what's going to happen historically is exactly what we see in this description. There'll be this season of peace, and then the Babylonians are going to rise up and do exactly what God says is going to happen to them. Verse 30, and the remnant. This is, the, by the way, the first chapter of the Bible, we see the word remnant. Remnant becomes a major concept of the remnant of the people of God, goes all the way through to the book of Revelation. There will always in the history of the world be a remnant of people that follow the Lord God Almighty. As of yet, nobody's destroyed that remnant, and this is where we see that. And by the way, there's a good place for that to be mentioned for the first time, because what we see is one city left. Like, we're right on the verge of Jewish people being wiped off the earth. And the remnant who have escaped to the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant. And those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord and the hosts will do this. God's going to eliminate idol worship from his people. And he will do it however he needs to do it. So the people of Jerusalem not only will survive, they will be stronger than when they started. Trials lead to strength. You see that. So this idea of remnant is that God protects the faithful. I take great joy in that. It doesn't matter how few of us there are. God will protect us. He will guard us. Verse 4, Hezekiah prays for the remnant. And here we see in his answer to Sennacherib that God is going to protect the remnant. And the remnant, remnant will re return. So I, Isaiah actually names his child She'ir Jashub, which is the remnant will return. So when Isaiah has a kid, he names his kid, the remnant will return. And I just think that's wonderful. These prophecies that Isaiah start giving start to give this promise of a remnant that God will protect and guard. The promise of the remnant is not the promise of the nation Israel necessarily, because the nation of Israel has been decimated. Um, at this point, we only have one tribe left of the original 12. It was clearly not a, pro a promise for the Reubenites. But it is a promise for the people of God that adhere to God, heart, mind, and soul, which has always been the condition that God gave. So God gave conditional promises for the nation Israel. If you obey me, you'll thrive. If you don't obey me, you won't. They were conditional promises. But for the people of God and the promise of a Savior for all of humanity, those were unconditional promises. There will be a promised Savior that comes. So... This idea of those that escape, they're going to be the people that escape Assyria in context. Spiritually speaking, those people that escape the world and the enemies of the world, that's the remnant that he's going to protect. Those that trust in the Lord at this point in history have likely ran to Jerusalem for their salvation because that's where God's name was. 
Today, the same thing's true. The people that run to the name of the Lord, who we now know as Jesus, people that run to Jesus will be the ones that get saved. That's the remnant. So this idea of root downward, Proverbs 12, 3, a man shall not be established by wickedness, but the root of righteousness shall not be moved. When they talk about the root that grows downward, that's likely the conversation of righteousness. They're going to grow deep because they follow the law. And then fruit, they're going to bear fruit upward. Uh, The first use of this plays on Sennacherib's claim that he took down the cypress tree and the cedar tree. Spiritually, this is an image that there's going to be a growth of Jewish tradition that gets even stronger. Um, for this first time, this first use of the idea of fruit, and that people bear fruit. So this is the first time we see that in the Bible. You can't get through the New Testament without seeing this image all over the place. Spiritual fruit is the outpouring of following God's law. John 5, 4, Abide me and I in you, and the branch can't bear fruit of itself except that it abide in the vine. No more can you except that you abide in me. How do we get fruit? We abide in Jesus Christ. How do the Jewish people get fruit? They abide in the name of the Lord. Like, not a big change. The fruit of the Spirit isn't instant. It grows over time. It happens as we develop. Instant change can happen, but it's not the prevailing image of the Bible. Prevailing image of the Bible is faithful living produces fruit. So people are like, I came to church once, and I'm not feeling a huge difference in my life. Yeah, where does it say in the Bible that's going to happen? Like, yes, there's some people that have instant change in their life. God does a miracle in their life. Amen to that. We praise those situations. But the vast majority of us, it's a growth over time. Bearing of fruit, fruit has to develop over a season of life. And when the fruit's there, it's clear that it's there. But sometimes you look at the tree, you don't even, you don't even see evidence of fruit on the tree. But a, fruit should bear, a tree should bear fruit in due season. And that's the idea for the remnant. They're going to follow God in righteousness, and over time, that's going to happen. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. It's going to be their love for God that makes this happen. And I just, you know, this idea that out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, out of the place, out of the the house of peace, there's going to be this joy that goes out to the world, this absolute adoration of the love of God. It's important that Jesus came and he went to Jerusalem. He went to this city. And it's in this city where he was crucified. It's out of this place that the branch of Israel is going to grow all over the earth and the vine will extend to all parts of the planet. This is the place that's going to happen. This is true for Hezekiah. It's also true for Jesus and the nation of Israel. It's out of this place that this will happen. So you can read this um, voice, this prophetic voice in multiple ways. Um, The idea that the Lord of hosts, the word hosts there actually means armies, literally. You think you have armies, Sennacherib, but I'm the God of armies. You think you're powerful, but I am power. There's an essential difference with God. He's belittled the name of God to be, he's just like every other little fake God that's out there. and, And God's response is, you don't even know what a God is yet. You haven't met one. So you worship power in arms, you bring those arms to the gates of Jerusalem and you watch what I do. Satan has us, lo- loves to have it, having us think that if, if he can only stop us with words and fear, the fruit won't go out of our life because we stop doing the things of God. The end result is bring your words in fear and see what that does. Bring that real challenge to a Christian and watch what happens. So I love the idea. Satan thought that if he could kill Jesus, it would be the end of God's plan. 
go ahead, try to kill Jesus, see what happens. And what happened was the church age was started. Like the idea that you can stop God's people by killing them is a false idea from a false religion. God says he will do this. In other words, Sennacherib, this is a promise. There will be fruit from these people. It's like he's baiting him. You try to stop my plan on this earth. Go ahead. Bring your big fat armies. And I will send them packing. He'll do more than that. Verse 32, therefore, says the Lord, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city. He says it twice. Says the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Right? By the way, from Mark this morning, evidence that God's the God of the living, it doesn't say from my former servant David's sake, it's from my servant David's still around. So there's nothing to say, first of all, this is not saying they can't march there. There's nothing in verses 32 through 34. In fact, it's almost an invitation to come marching there. So you will come here, and by the same you'll return, verse 33. It's more than saying that they'll win. It's going to say they're not going to come into the... One thing is to say you won't take Jerusalem. Like, that's just like getting ready for a fight kind of talk. You can't beat us. It's more than that. It's saying... Not only can you not beat us like after a tough battle, there's a very specific prediction here. The battle won't even happen. You won't even get off an arrow. So Sennacherib's idea of power is entirely about armies. And so building siege mounds, shooting arrows, coming at it with shields that's melee, ranged, and, um, and artillery. So he's taking the three areas of every army for the history of the world and saying, you can't do any of this. If you say you won't even shoot an arrow, you know how you beat God's prophecy? You just send down a troop of 100 people and say, get your bow out and shoot an arrow at the city, and then, ha-ha, you're wrong. That's all they had to do to beat this prophecy. But it's so easy to read. You just walk up and fire one off, and God's promise is gone. So it's almost like, hey, Sennacherib, you think military is powerful and great? March your army down here. You won't even get off an arrow. That's just... And then you won't come before it, meaning to attack it. You can't even charge the city. You know how to beat that prophecy? Say, Tom, lead the charge. And as a commander, you just send your soldiers and they charge right in. The prophecy's done. You won't even get a charge off. Or Verse 3, you won't build a siege mound about it. This one's important. A siege happens well before the battle even starts. You surround the city at a distance so nobody's shooting anything at each other. And then you start to get your siege mound stuff ready. In other words, you start throwing rocks and dirt at the city and you keep moving enough of it to where you can climb up the wall without charging the wall. It takes a long time to do it. You cut off their water supply. All you got to do is surround the city and start moving earth towards the wall. The prediction here is you will not build a siege mound against the city. Later on, Sennacherib's going to brag that he did too build a siege mound, which is like internal evidence. I just love it. If God's wrong, he's not. He's saying anything you think you're going to do, you won't get it off. For I will defend this city. Even He even tells Sennacherib how to prove him wrong. Go ahead and try to take Jerusalem. Shoot one arrow. That's all you got to do to prove me wrong. And he says, I'll do it for my sake. Sennacherib's so excited about burning demonic images and false gods and how proud he is of beating these gods. He's about to find out that he's no match for the real God at all. We think it's our job to defend God. 
it's not our job to defend God. God can defend himself. He doesn't need the the people of Israel to do this for him. In fact, um, he's going to do this entirely on his own because at this point it's personal, right? He's not going to work through Hezekiah and Hezekiah's armies like he did with David. At this point he's like, ah, Hezekiah, I got this one. This is all me. This is between me and these folks. So he talks about his servant David, not the legendary King David, but an actual King David. All kings are servants. He calls him not King David. He calls him my servant David. The thing that Sennacherib's got wrong is that as a king, as a leader of people, he's a servant. He's not over them. He's supposed to be under them. So the way he refers to David, I think, is a a slight correction. To Assyria, they would have just heard the name of David, and by historical standards, David was a little tribal king. Why mention David instead of Solomon? Solomon had all the might and power. But God loves David in his simplicity and in the humility of David being in charge of Jerusalem. David's Israel is much smaller than Solomon's Israel. And so I think it's interesting that God mentions David, but for the Assyrians, they would have probably heard of Solomon much, much more. David would have been the minor predecessor. But for God, he's showing through this rebuke, he's showing what's important to him. The reference of David would have been a 300 years ago reference. That would like be before a revolutionary war. Like, this is a servant that came well before um, in history. It's a clear reference to the promise that God made to David. I think this is one of the reasons he mentions David. He said to David, 2 Samuel 7, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them. And we still have the reference to growing going on today. The verse 30 link is clearly there. That they might dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them anymore as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused them to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord tells thee that he will make for thee a house. And when thy days shall be fulfilled, I pulled the King James on this, sorry, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. This is God's promise to David. There will be a seed. You will have someone in your line that's going to save the planet. And his kingdom, his throne, shall be established forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. That's the promise to David. So when God talks about his servant David, he's talking about that Messiah, the messianic promise. There's There's a reason God's going to keep these people alive and it's not their holiness. It's that God's going to work through these people and this will be done for my servant David's sake. What that means to the Jewish people is very encouraging. The Son of God is on his way. And the reference to this passage, this 2 Samuel passage, by mentioning my servant David's sake, is that I made a promise to David that I plan to keep. By the same he shall return. You know, this is like challenging Tom Brady to a football game in the backyard. I'm making a reference everybody gets, right? Tom Brady is a big, famous quarterback, and he's handsome as heck, right? It's like going to Tom Brady saying, my friends and me, we're going to take your friends on, and you can actually have the Super Bowl championship team as your friends. Don't even have to go with your loser team. You can just play with your championship team. Bring the Super Bowl champs. You can quarterback them, and then me and the Hezekiah remnant team will take you on. And not only that, we're going to beat you so bad you won't even get the first hike off. Like, you, that won't even happen. Um, and, 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 you know, and we're going to be playing with elementary school kids. 
You know, so it'll be us and our elementary school friends against you and your Super Bowl champs, and you won't even get a hike off. You won't throw one ball, you won't want run one yard, and you definitely won't build a siege mound against us. That's what this would be like for Sennacherib. It's a peon little city bragging against the empire of Assyria. The biggest empire, frankly, that the world has known at this point. Maybe China's got more geographical space at this period in history, but Assyria is absolutely the center of power in the Middle East. If this happens, if we beat you in that football game, nobody gets the glory but God. Nobody gets the glory but God. Not Hezekiah, not Isaiah, nobody. Remember, the Sennacherib team still has a choice here. They could go home and humble themselves. They don't have to march to Jerusalem to take up this. God's inviting them, go ahead and try me. And they don't have to do it. They still have free will. They can still stay home. They've been adequately warned about what's about to happen if they come down. So I'm wondering if Isaiah's thinking, God, do you really want me to send this note off to send? Like, I'm thinking Isaiah writes all this down. Okay, I got what you said, Lord. Do you really want me to send this? Because they just went home. Why would you send a letter after them, inviting them to come back? And so we'll see what happens. Second Kings doesn't give us any setup. It really doesn't matter uh, for this situation. We don't hear a response from Sennacherib at all. His response is he marches his armies, exactly as you would think. You know, Sennacherib and Team Super Bowl, they put their team together. And like, all right, fine, we'll take you guys on. Let's go for it. Um, We're testing God's promises. We're testing the remnant to Judah. That's what kind of matters in this passage. Verse 35, and it came to pass on a certain night, doesn't matter, that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people rose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away and returned home and remained at Nineveh. He doesn't come out again. All right, so history, some people argue these verses are the most important turning point of human history. If the Jews were destroyed, Judaism is destroyed. If Judaism is destroyed, Islam and Christianity are destroyed. These two verses, right, two verses, three verses, these two verses, if they didn't go this way, you wouldn't have the three major world religions on the planet Earth right now. Like, this would have absolutely destroyed the hope of Yahweh on the planet Earth. And it says, and it came to pass, confirming that it came to pass as Isaiah said it would. So again, he's a prophet. His prophets are confirmed. This means that when Isaiah says Hezekiah is a good servant, it means he's a good servant. He did what he was told. It means that Esagai's prayer was effective. It means that Isaiah's prophecy was held true. A few thoughts on this. It's just such a big thing. If God's an absolute power and authority, he can do whatever he pleases. And I love that it's only two verse. We just don't get a lot of detail about this. It just happens. Boom. There's no fireworks. There's no... They wake up in the morning and they see 185,000 dead people outside their city. Imagine the cleanup. Think about that. This is a lot of work for the Israelites. You're just going to leave 185,000 corpses laying in the field? No. you got to clean them up, burn them. So Hezekiah gets to do some work, but it's cleanup work. It's not the glory of war. It's the inglorious work of cleaning up dead bodies. So it comes to pass. It's simple and direct and brutally effective. On a certain night, doesn't matter what night it is, whatever night they arrived in Jerusalem, like it was too dark, 
to start shooting arrows. Why shoot an arrow at a dark? Well, we'll shoot him in the morning. Uh, so there's an angel in the Hebrew that's malak. It means messenger. Literally, a messenger is a mouthpiece of God. This entire story has been filled with the mouthpiece of Assyria, the Rabshakeh. But the mouthpiece of God doesn't say a word. The Rabshakeh is full of hot air. All he has is words. But when the mouthpiece of God shows up, there's no words to say. It's all action and all powerful. So the Rabshakeh talks a bunch, God's messenger. Only one, by the way. God's the God of hosts. He only sends one soldier to deal with this problem. Think of the power dynamic that's there. So the singular one, he sends um, an angel of the Lord going there. He sends a singular angel. That's not a plural word. So the argument here is one angel deals with 185,000 humans without much problem at all. What happens when you have a host of angels? What could possibly stand against that on the planet Earth? So... Again, so much packed in here. 185,000. Here's the piece. You'd have to bury that many bodies or cremate them. And so the fires would have to happen, and those fires would not go out for a long time. You would have to create a place that was easy to access right outside the city that would pretty much become a corrupted piece of land for all of eternity. When you hit the first century, there is that place the Jewish people still throw their trash. It's called Gehenna. It's a little spot at the end of the Kinron Valley that was where, that, where they would say, and Jesus used it as an example, it would have the ever-burning fires of people's trash, where the composting itself would cause smoke, but they would occasionally light fires to turn more of it to ash. So there is a spot in Jerusalem called Gehenna um, that has the ever-burning fires, and this is where that was likely where they started to burn these dead bodies. And historically, you see that that becomes a trash dump for all of history. So we're dealing with the dead bodies. Um, there, there were the corpses all dead. <laughs> this is written for a reason. They didn't retreat. They didn't redirect. You look at histor- like secular histories of Assyria. None of them can quite pinpoint why Assyria fell. So they come up with really elaborate stories of what happened to Assyria. Um, they didn't retreat. They didn't redirect their actions. They, the corpses were there, and they were all dead. So the Assyrian battle accounts, they have these friezes. They're prolific in their history to date. They record every battle, every victory. They're super proud of their military victories. Their whole culture is around this. And they get up to Lachish, and they just stop. No more structures, no more statues, no more pride happens after this particular event. Sennacherib does give account um, that he uh, attacked Jerusalem. He never records that he beat Jerusalem. So this is interesting history. Herodotus, who's writing well after this event, has an explanation. He thinks this was a rat infestation. So what happened is, Armies of rats came into their tents at night while they slept and ate the straps on the shields and the bowstrings of the bows so they were unable to shoot or bring a shield up. I think that's like a really extreme thing to think of, but it's a theory. We'll go there. Um, The Egyptians' guesses, if you read the Egyptian history, is that the Assyrians all caught a unique disease and died on the same night. That's pretty extreme, too. That would take a lot of faith to believe that one. But that was the Egyptian guess. There's really no reason to think through rats or disease that 185,000 people would all die at the same time. 
that's a hard one to explain. It's hard to get over that one. Other accounts concur uh, that Assyria might have broken at this point. Babylon, a secondary puppet of Nineveh, suddenly becomes the might of the Fertile Crescent. So Nineveh falls from grace, and within a year, Babylon becomes the dominant power. It's the only people with armies left in the area. The Egyptian army got broke by the Assyrians. The Assyrian army got broke by Israel. There's no armies left. So you get this season of peace that's pretty long in the region until Babylon just starts marching in. When Babylon moves to Nineveh, there is no resisting force. They take over with very little conflict. So there is simply no challenging army left in the region that's all. So this would be like the Bahamas standing up to England, but instead of just beating them off, they actually go and invade London. That's what Babylon beating Nineveh was like. Like, how did that even happen? So nobody can explain how Babylon rose as quickly as it did and actually had enough force to conquer the Assyrian capital. That's absolutely unheard of. Like, how did that, how did that work out? So the unstoppable force of history just felt the unstoppable creator of force itself. Boom. They hit this massive god wall. Verse 36, so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed. Very simple reading that he went back home alone. Like he had an army with him and there's, he's, the, it doesn't say he went back with a remnant. It doesn't say he and a few other soldiers went back. It just says he went back. So he returns home. What happens to Sennacherib after that? Well, what, what happens next? He conveniently writes a State of the Union address and it con- conveniently forgets all of his failures. So he gives his State of the Union and goes back to Assyria. He writes a big speech for the people about how amazing he is while everything horrible is happening around him. So the entire economies fall apart. The army is destroyed. They can't protect their borders against Babylon. And he gives the State of the Union saying how great he is as a king. And the people of Babylon, the annals of Sennacherib, the Taylor prison, I'm going to read you a quote from his speech. He says, I attacked Hezekiah, king of Judah who had not subjected himself to me and took 46 fortresses, forts, and small cities. And I carried away captive over 200,150 people, big and small, both male and female, a multitude of horses, young bulls, asses, camels, and oxen. Hezekiah himself I locked up in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage, and I put up banks against the city. Which I love that he puts that in there. Why would you say I put up banks against the city? It seems like an odd little detail to be proud of in your in your State of the Union address. I think he put it in there because he got that letter from Isaiah saying you wouldn't be able to do that. And there's everyone in the world knows that he caged up Isaiah in Jerusalem that he he went after the city, but nobody was left to prove him long about building up banks against the city. Everybody that was there to witness that was dead. So he could lie in his State of the Union address and nobody could call him, call him foul on that. So I escaped, this, I escaped his city, I, I separated his cities whose inhabitants I had taken prisoners from this realm and gave them to Matini, king of Ashdod, Paddy, the king of Ekron, and Zilbel, the king of Gaza, and thus diminished his country. And I added another tax to the one imposed upon him earlier. <laughs> and I taxed him. It doesn't say that Hezekiah paid the taxes, and the biblical account is he didn't pay the taxes. But he's in his State of the Union saying, not only did I shrink Hezekiah's empire, I charged him taxes. And the Bible says that Hezekiah never paid them. Um, Sennacherib lives to endure the shame and dishonor of this. Um, 
contemporaries could correct any of these claims to victory if he made them. He never claims to have beaten Jerusalem because nobody would have believed him because everyone was there to say that that's not true. This is important when we look at history, that when people make claims that they think they can get away with, we often see lies. But when people make claims that everybody could see it, we rarely see lies because then you, you're called out for those things. Contemporaries would say, you never conquered Jerusalem. What are you talking about? But when he says he built up siege bounds, that's in the face of God, but it's really just between him and God when he makes that statement. There's nobody that could have proven him wrong in that. So it's an indirect con con confirmation, I think, of the very smallest details of the scriptures actually playing out in history. And who are you going to believe? The biblical account on this or the guy that went home with his tail between his legs and had every reason to lie about what happened? And even in his lies, he doesn't go to the point of claiming he took Jerusalem. That said, his sons kill him, so his state of the union didn't work. The end result is his two sons killed him because they saw him as an utterly incompetent king. He had just lost their army. The two sons that kill him, one of them becomes the head of Nineveh, the other one becomes the head of Babylon, and the Babylonian king decides to go kill the other one um, because he knows there's no, def no defending army. So Babylon conquers the territory. Go back to our chapter, verse 37. Now it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the temple of Nishrach his God, that his sons Adramelech and Shalrezar struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat, and then Eshardon, his son, reigned in his place. Eshardon's the one that picks up the, the, the records of Assyria. So if there is any Assyrian record, Eshardon's the kind of the, the last king that keeps things that we have in the archaeological record right now. The other son, two sons don't really bother. Um, it's interesting that he dies in the temple of Nishrach. Despite what he saw from God, isn't it amazing that he didn't turn to Yahweh and start to worship him? Like he's the one human being walking the earth that probably knows kind of how this whole thing happened with all the soldiers. He got that letter from God and that warning. The Jews are stubborn in a good, hum humble way. They stick to their God. The world gets stubborn in this kind of bad way. Despite all evidence to the contrary, he stubbornly follows Nishrach and he follows his pride and he does it until his end. And it's so sad to me that you would have a human being that could see that mighty hand of God and still not turn. And we see the miracles of God every week at church. I just think it's awesome. And you still have people that doesn't move their heart. So it doesn't matter how big of a miracle you see, if you don't want to serve God, God's left us a, an existence where we can choose to not follow him, even to our own end. So they make a legit attempt to erase the Jews of Judah. This is not the last time that people are going to try to erase the Jews from the planet Earth. Um, but it's important. They don't just want to eliminate the Jews of Judah. We've seen throughout the last two chapters, they want to eliminate the God that the Jews serve. So this is kind of an important thing. The Jewish people start to take pride in that they're God's special children, and God starts the church, right? It's not, it's not their ethnicity that matters. It's the God that they serve and represent that matters, and that's a really important thing. God allows his people to be bent but not broken, disciplined but not without a guide, doubting but not faithless. And no matter how bad it looks, the remnant is going to be faithful. Egypt tried to destroy them. Now Assyria's tried to destroy them. 
Babylon tries to destroy them, Persia tries to destroy them, Rome will try to destroy them, and then Nazi Germany tries to destroy them. All of those nations become unrecognizable within a generation of that effort. This is, when you do this to God's people and God's promise, historically, very consistent record, get ready to be wiped off the face of the earth. The Nazi empire at its height in Germany, and they controlled all of the mainland Europe. There was no stopping them. They were utterly powerful. And so that idea that they started to think we could get rid of the final solution for these Jewish people to eliminate them all, bad decision. It was the beginning of the end for the German Empire. And you wonder to what degree if they would have been humble to God and not prideful in trying to destroy Jews, if they would have been allowed to continue as an empire for a while. You can argue the USSR had a pogroms against the Jews. That lasted for a season, and now there's no more USSR. That tends to be the historical work. Well, there's still a Germany. Yeah, but not a recognizable. The entire government structure changes. Well, there's still an Egypt. Yeah, they were conquered by the Muslims. Those aren't Egyptians anymore. It's just a nation that we call it that. I want to end tonight just on a little bit of that historical thinking. I think it's important here. This is a huge historical event. It's important to know that Jews are special to God because he's made some promises through them. And I think we should know as Christians, those promises continue to the end of days. There are promises about Israel in the book of Revelation. They're an important people to God even to this day. Unimaginably, they're the only people on earth that have been handed a country in 1948. They were diasporaed all over the planet. And in one day, a decision was made to give the, the Jews their own homeland again. And the British people just handed it to them. And so they got their own land back. That was unthinkable before 1948. How would you do that? How would you just create a country out of thin air with an ethnically consistent group of people? It's just stunning. On the other hand, Assyria, they never re recover. The rest of the story for Assyria, they, they evaporate from the planet Earth. They never recover from this situation. It's the most powerful empire on Earth, just gets wiped out. It says the two sons escaped to the land of Ararat. That's not just Turkey. It would be all the lands between Ararat and the Tigris-Euphrates River. They go up into the northern parts of the country where they can kind of live out their days in obscurity. Um, Eshardan, his son, reigns in his place. He continues with defiance. He continues to worship false gods, but he doesn't really have a country anymore. And so there's no record of any conquering. Uh, the Assyrians immediately submit to the Babylonians. So there's not even a conflict or a record of a battle there, which is very consistent with the biblical record. Babylon, who has Assyrian leadership does in fact conquer Assyria and they take the leadership away and they haul them away by hook because that's what the Assyrians did. So that comes true. Then the Achaemenid Empire or Persia, then the Macedonian Greece Empire conquers this area. Then the Seleucids conquer this area, but Israel stays under Greek influence. Then this part of the area, this Ararat part of the world, the Parthians take over, then the Romans take over, then the Sassanids take over, then the Muslim Caliphates take over, then the Arabians or the Abbasids take over, then the Seljuk Turks, the, Mong the Ottoman Empire, and then the Mongol hordes actually get this far south, conquer this territory. They get pushed back, um, but they don't get as far south as Jerusalem. The Mongol hordes never reach Israel. But they do go through this part of the world. Then the Ottomans take back over centuries of wars with the Ottomans. The Ottomans are constantly fighting for control with the Arabians. Um, and then in 1919, 
the end of the World War II, the British and the French take over this part of the world, both this Assyrian region and Israel, and they co-own it. And that doesn't work very well because the British and the French, they don't get along that well. So the British and the French, both nations that have a, Christ, a Christian tradition, they split the land up. The British get the territory that we call Israel today. The French get this territory north of it, which they call Syria. The reason they call it Syria is because they're looking at the Bible, and this is the region the Assyrians came from. So they name it accordingly. So the fact that there's still a country with this name even is simply because the French thought that would be the right name to call this region of land. So they undo a ton of history. This isn't because those people were Assyrian, but because the French had a regard for the biblical names. Then in 1948, British decides they're done holding territory in the Middle East for good reason. It's a very volatile land. In 1948, they basically say, any Jewish people that want to move here, we'll keep control and help you until you build your own army and you can defend yourself as a country. So in 1948, they come from all over the world. There's a, 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 a war that happens immediately. All the nations around it attack. Israel wins the battle and pushes them back. In negotiations, they return a lot of that land, go back to the original borders. And then in 2015, meanwhile, north of the border in this very region that we call Assyria, you have a new group that forms. Their headquarters right next to this area of the world. And they call themselves ISIS. They're expansionistic. They use terror as a weapon. They encourage fear, and they're full of a lot of hot air and words, and sometimes they back it up with violence. Sound familiar? And that group of people pops up in the exact same part of the world, and today Israel is still at odds with the people of this part of the world. They're still in conflict with each other. Hasn't changed. New names, new people. What's our takeaway from this chapter? First of all, God's a lot bigger than any human problem. I hope we take that away tonight. God defends his name and he protects his plan of salvation until the end. And it, that's not going to change. Don't get too worked up about the news. Because God's plan will move forward despite how fearful and scary Sennacherib wants to make it look. Pray for God's will and know that he has the power to do that. And I think we can take that away. The right response to fear is prayer. Finally, don't mess with Israel. <laughs> like, you would think geopolitically people would figure this out after this many thousand years of human history. Don't screw with Israel. That's not a good public policy. Um, so I hope we can walk away from that. Like You want to be on Israel, Israel's good side. Um, and if you want to do world domination, if any of you want to take over the world, you should leave Israel alone. And just let them be a dot and you can take over the rest of the planet and God probably won't stop you. But you go after Israel and there's something special about those people. You're going to lose. And it doesn't matter how big you think you are. So I hope we walk away from that too in case any of you are global dominators. Um, you should walk away knowing that about God and his power. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for everything you give us in your word. Lord, thank you for saving your people. Thank you for keeping your promises. Thank you for knowing the promise you made to your servant David and knowing that that promise had to do with a seed of salvation. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for giving us a way. Thank you for giving us the truth. Thank you for putting a new life in our hearts and renewing us and, 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 and bringing us back to your throne every day. Lord, I don't, I don't even need this chapter to know that you, you've done a new thing in my heart. 
There's people in this room that can testify to what you do and the changes you make. Lord, we know that fruit happens over time and some of us have seen that fruit. Lord, I pray if there's people in this room that haven't seen the spiritual fruit in their lives, that they go to your altar, they lay it out, before, they spread it out before you and they put their troubles and their cares at your feet so that they can see that fruit. I pray their roots grow deep. They know your word, they know the history, they remember your stories because they've read them and studied them and they get deep roots in your promises, in the fulfillment, in your power, in your strength, in your glory. Lord, I pray that the fruit grows and that the spiritual branches go all over the place. Lord, I pray that we move forward in truth and justice. I pray that the way we do battle is not to pick up a sword, but to get on our knees. I, I pray that we learn that, even from the Old Testament, that we learn that. The way we do battle is to come before you and hand it to you and let you fight our battles. Lord, fight our battles. I've got some people in the room and we're struggling with all sorts of things. And I don't know the heart of everybody in this room, but you do, God. You know where everybody's coming from. So Lord, I pray we put those things before you. We leave them at your feet. We go forward in the freedom and the knowledge that you are sovereign God over all the earth. Lord, we thank you for Israel. We thank you that we live in an age where we can see the hope of Israel has been restored. You've brought those people back to their land. Uh, you've done it exactly as you said you would do it. Um, so we even have prophecy being fulfilled today. It's amazing, Lord. We just can't wait to see what you'll do next. Lord, we also pray for our enemies. We pray for the people right now in Syria and in Lebanon and the, where these earthquakes have hit, the, the mass disaster in those areas. Uh, Lord, we know those are people that um, a lot of them have hated Israel, but Lord, we don't want anyone to perish. We want them all to come into the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us not to, even when we say enemies in the Bible, help us to pray for our enemies, to love those people. Lord, we just pray for their redemption. We pray for their repentance. And we pray for them to, to know you instead of trying to be fearful. Lord, you gave Sennacherib three years to not attack. You gave them a season of peace and a season of warning. You proved yourself and you reached out to them. So help us do the same. Help us to not hate our enemies, but to pray for them and to lift them up. Lord, we just pray that they learn who you are like we have. Lord, we pray your, your name is glorified over all the ends of the earth. We pray that all the people of the earth will hear your name. And Lord, in any way you want to use us, use us. Just show us the opportunities, Lord, and we will do it. And we'll move forward in your name. Give us the faith and the, the resiliency and the stubbornness of Hezekiah, that good stubbornness, that we hold to your name, we hold to your word, and we do it without apology. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.